So let's open our Bibles to Psalm 55. Our text this morning is Psalm 55. We are looking at psalms that were either quoted by Jesus or that are messianic in character because they talk about the Messiah in some way. That's why we're not in any particular uh, order. The topic in this wonderful psalm, David cried, wishing he had wings like a dove so that he could fly away from trouble. The title of our message, When Doves Cry. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing to be gathered together. Really touched by the ending songs, Lord, the mashup there of those songs, because uh, some were really brought me back to when I was first saved. And I realized how timeless, Lord, your word is. And when it's put to music, how wonderful it is. We don't have the melody to this psalm, Lord, but I pray that we would remember that it's music to your ears, sung by David, Lord, in order to do more than give us instruction, to give us inspiration in time of trouble. As we analyze it, Lord, I pray that we don't take it apart so much that we can't put it back together again as something beautiful. Speak to our hearts. We know you're here. We ask it in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. There are more than a few remarkable mice. Mickey and Minnie, of course, top of the list. Jerry, Tom and Jerry. Speedy Gonzalez, who remembers him from Saturday morning cartoons? Did you remember his cousin? Slowpoke Rodriguez, that's right. All racially charged stuff. But anyway, <laughs> they, uh, they went off with the Frito Bandito. <laughs> Pinky and the Brain, Gus from Cinderella. Gus, Gus. Fievel Mouskowitz, Mighty Mouse, my favorite. Here I come to save the day. Stuart Little, Mrs. Brisby from The Secret of Nim. If you've never seen The Secret of Nim, classic. Go home right now and watch it. And then, of course, Pixie and Dixie. Pikachu is often thought of as a mouse, but the character was originally inspired by a squirrel. Hope that doesn't bother any of you. Did I mention Timothy Q. Mouse? One of his greatest moments in the animated feature, Dumbo, ended up on the cutting room floor. In the deleted scene, Timothy tells a dejected Dumbo that his grandpa used to say, now listen here, you little tyke. Lots of things are going to happen to you that you won't like. And then Timothy sang a song, Are You a Man or a Mouse? When the going gets rough and old man trouble's getting tough, stand right up and call his bluff. Are you a man or a mouse? Now, you're not going to find any mice in Psalm 55, but there is a dove. David said in verse 6, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Indeed, I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. David was expressing his desire to flee from his troubles rather than to have to face them. As is so often the case, God did not give David wings like a dove in his troubles. He instead promised to sustain him in his troubles. No other animal is directly named in the psalm, but if you look at verse 22, you'll see the word burden. The very word suggests another animal to the Hebrew mind. The main animal of burden in the Bible was the donkey. In the 74 or so times they are mentioned, they are always depicted as work animals or riding animals. That's their lot. They plow fields and they carry loads. And so we could say that David the dove wanted to escape his lot in life, 
but David the donkey would be sustained in his troubles. I'll organize my comments by asking you that same question. Are you a dove or are you a donkey? Let's take a look at the doves in verses 1 through 15. Now, you can't be thinking of dove as a symbol of God, the Holy Spirit. That's not what's intended here. You can't be thinking of it as a label for pacifists. And certainly it's not the symbol of the Democratic Party in this. Uh, in, in, you know, so forget all of those connotations that you have. And just understand that the dove in this song is a common bird who has the benefit of independent flight in order to escape its troubles, nothing more, nothing less. David thought, or at least he wanted, to fly away. And so verse 1, to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Here's a trivia question. How many guitars play on Hotel California? Anybody want to hazard a guess? It varies, but the usual number is eight. Eight acoustic guitars. Who can't? Is anybody here that doesn't sing along when that comes on? I want to know. Okay. You can stay. David put his contemplation of his troubles to music, and he wrote it for multiple stringed instruments to perform. He said, hey, chief musician, here's a psalm. Here's a song that I've written uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I wrote it specifically for stringed instruments. David, of course, a musician himself, an inventor of musical instruments, a songwriter, a singer. And uh, he said, hey, get, get all the string section here. I don't want no piano, no organ. This is no organ in church. We're starting a new movement. But anyway, give ear to my prayer sounds okay. But then he says, do not hide yourself from my supplication. And that always seems to diminish God. Uh, uh, you know, to say, why are you hiding yourself or don't hide yourself? But let's look at verse two first. Attend to me and hear me. I am restless in my complaint and moan noisily. A lot of times in the Psalms and in what is called uh, Hebrew poetry, there are parallel verses where the two verses say the same thing a different way or give uh, the second verse will give a little bit more insight to what he meant in the first verse. And that's what's happening here. And so verse two is kind of a repeat of verse one. He first asked again to be heard. Then he described the character of his supplication. He said it was a noisy, restless, moaning complaint. And so when David asked God to not hide himself from his supplication, it was because David knew he was whining. Do you like whining? Don't you love it when your children whine? Those of you who have young children, their voice gets all crazy in that, in that you know, tone that your mind is just blown. You can hardly stand it. It's like when the, the test thing comes on the radio. And that's all you hear. And they're whining and complaining and crying. Not that he ever did, but in my house, the answer to that was always, if you cry, I can give you something to cry about. What a great philosophy of life. I mean, <laughs> who's the guy who wrote a book, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten? Yeah, that was, this is, to me, that was my philosophy of life. Let me give you something to cry about. That, that, that has shaped and formed the man I am today. But anyway... So David says, hey, you know, I'm whining, restless, moaning, crying. And so, you know, I know that you, nobody wants to hear that. In The Godfather, a weeping Johnny Fontaine complains to the Don about a movie role he wanted and didn't get. The Don gets up and slaps him saying, you can act like a man. 
David allowed himself to deteriorate into that kind of self-pity, he deserved a slap. Now, he wasn't, you know, we shouldn't think of God as slapping us. He doesn't. Uh, But David said, hey, I deserve to be slapped for the way I'm acting. People like to point out that God is okay with your doubts or your complaints, but that's never the point. The question is, are you okay with them? Do you want to be the kind of believer that doubts and complains? The kind who needs a slap to act like a man or a woman of God? No, nobody wants to be that way. Whether or not God allows you to be that way is secondary to the fact that you don't You don't like to do that. If you don't want children whining, maybe they're not even your own. They're in the store. How many times have you wanted to take over? Say, hey, I just happen to have a paddle in the car. I can teach you in 30, 40 seconds how to properly swat your child, or I can do it. But this has to stop right now. I mean, seriously. You know, and, and see, from, from the point of view, think of God listening to your whining. And yet, so, okay, so he's patient. That's wonderful. You don't want to be that person. So why don't you just slap yourself? I'm not going to slap. I've often wanted to slap people in counseling. And I'm sure they've often wanted to punch me, but <laughs> slap yourself. Verse three, because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, For they bring down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me. My heart is severely pained within me, and the terrors of death have fallen on me. Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. Wow. David is really describing this kind of, uh, you know, whining behavior that he's fallen into. Have you been to the doctor recently? And if you have, did they give you a depression screening? A lot of doctors are doing this now as a regular thing. I, I don't know if it's part of the state of California trying to help you or not, but sometimes they tell you, hey, I'm going to give you a five-question depression screening. Other times they just sneak the questions in. Hey, how you doing? And by that, I mean, are you in despair? Let me just tell you right now, if they do that, the answer to give is always not at all. You ever feel like killing yourself? <laughs> not at all. Uh, do you ever feel like you're letting other people down? Not at all. Because if your answer is yes to any of those questions, you go on a list somewhere. I'm telling you, I'm warning you, you heard it here first. But this is like David. If you, if you were to ask David, hey, what's going on? And this is his unloading. He says, this is how I feel. I'm afraid of dying. I'm, I'm horrified. David, the so-called man after God's own heart, was heartbroken. He had heartache and desperation and despair and depression. So I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Indeed, I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness, Selah. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and tempest. David did not have wings and neither do we. It's his desire. He said, I want out of this right now. And if I were a dove, I could fly away. And we watch birds in our backyard. It's a big thing for us. We attract birds. We've got all kinds of crazy birds. Last month was our biggest month ever for different species in our backyard. We had 30 species of birds come into our backyard. One su- last, two Sundays ago, I woke up and I looked outside and I go, what is that? And it was a green heron. It was like you know, this huge bird was just hanging out in our backyard. I got, luckily, I got a picture. Of, I got all shaky. You know, I got to get the camera, you know, and stuff. Probably never see one again, but, you know, and so birds, they just, but we watch them and anytime you, they're like real skittish, right? I don't know how you train them at Disneyland to come for French fries, but they, they won't do that for us. The, the slightest movement and they're gone they're, and they have staging areas. They, 
bush, tree, gone, you know, depending on what level of problem it might be. And so David said, if I were a dove, I would just fly away to the wilderness where nothing can touch me. David didn't have wings. We don't, but we sometimes think we can be capable of independent flight without the Lord's help. We look to the so-called wisdom of the world or to its resources as our wings attempting flight. Think of some of the troubles that you've been in in life, and you can identify probably looking back some of the worldly methods that you tried first to get out of it, and then you figured out that God was the one that was going to sustain you. When troubles come upon me, I try to exercise independent flight to avoid them, and I waste a lot of time until realizing I can't escape my lot in life because I'm not a dove. The particular troubles David wanted to fly from are described next. He said, destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues, for I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are also in the midst of it. Destruction is in its midst, uh, midst rather. Oppression and deceit do not depart from its streets. Someone or someones were causing serious dissent against David's rule in Jerusalem. Their deceitful tongues, meaning lying words, were fomenting strife, Violence, iniquity, trouble, destruction, and oppression. So this was like a whisper campaign or a word campaign against David that was undermining his authority. We're not told what event this psalm uh, is about, really, and so we have to be careful. But it does sound a lot like the time when David's son Absalom was laying the groundwork for his hostile takeover of the kingdom. If you read that episode, you see that he used lying, deceitful words in order to turn the hearts of the people towards him and away from David. Verse 12, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. It was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. If David was describing the rebellion of Absalom, the companion he's talking about in these verses would be his court counselor, a guy named Ahithophel. He changed loyalties when Absalom revolted and uh, turned against David. It's, it's a long story of intrigue, but at one point Ahithophel gave counsel and it was disregarded. And so he saw the writing on the wall. He went home and promptly hanged himself. But we see in this a messianic prophecy. It very obviously looks forward past Ahithophel and David to Judas and Jesus. What a comfort it must have brought our Lord Jesus to recall this psalm. I've told you before that Jesus quoted more from the Psalms than any other book when he's uh, recorded in the New Testament. I think it's safe to say it was his favorite book. And, And it may be your favorite book, or you may not know it's your favorite book, but many times it's the Psalms you go to for comfort and encouragement more than anything else. And I, I always want to remind people, whatever it is you're going through, ask the Lord to give you a passage of scripture. And he probably already has. If you're in some kind of a trouble and you're, you're, you're like David, you feel horrible and terrible and you want to fly away, probably the Lord's been already speaking to you. Maybe through the Bible study, you've heard a certain verse or certain section. Then you turn on the radio on your way to work and you hear the same thing or you listen to a podcast that has the same thing or somebody comes up to you or you're in Hobby Lobby and there's the same verse or whatever. And then you finally, I've heard that verse 17 times. And then you read it and you think, oh my goodness, this is just what I'm going through. And 
you're still going through it, but you know that God is speaking to you and encouraging you and strengthening you. And Jesus, as a man going through his troubles on the earth, the betrayal of Judas would have been greatly encouraged by this psalm because just as David would go through his troubles and remain king, so Jesus would endure the cross and reclaim the kingdom. So it would speak directly to him about his mission and God's faithfulness. Verse 15, let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. Wow. I don't say this for shock value, but this is a go to hell kind of verse, right? Let them go down to hell. And this is an imprecatory statement in which people are cursed with destruction and death. And and we, we need to deal with this because this is the kind of thing people point to and say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. The God of the Old Testament is a cranky old man. These guys, you know, wanted vengeance. But first of all, let me say this. In fact, David did not feel this way if we're talking about his son, Absalom. He specifically told his men to not kill Absalom, even though he deserved death as a traitor. He loved him and wouldn't have killed him himself. And certainly Jesus did not feel this toward Judas. When you read the dialogue between Jesus and Judas in the New Testament, Jesus doesn't turn and say, Go ahead down to hell now. No, he's still reaching out to Judas in love for him and trying to woo him back. And so these are statements that ultimately reveal the future of any and all who remain in their wickedness, in their sin. They're not directed necessarily towards the individual in the psalm. They're general statements. Death will seize the wicked. Jesus conquered death on the cross. That means those of you who receive Christ as your savior have no more fear of death. Death is not an enemy. Death can do nothing to you. When you die, you're in the presence of the Lord. But those who reject Christ and die in their sins, death grabs them and won't let go. It's too late. There's no chance after death to make a decision for Christ, even though your eyes are opened at that moment to realize what was really going on. And you await final punishment and you will be dead in a sense forever and ever, not unconscious, but conscious with torment. And so don't let death seize you because you will go down alive into hell. So the question here, are you a dove? We all try independent flight from time to time. It's our natural reaction. Just remember, you don't want to react naturally. You want to react supernaturally. Are you a donkey? Jesus wasn't alone in loving this psalm. The Apostle Peter borrowed from verse 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Now, burden is a word with totally negative connotations to us. It's a heavy load. It's a grief. It's an anxiety. It's something you put on other people that bothers them. It's something that slows you down. Again, you have to change your thinking because in this psalm, a burden is not a bad thing. Derek Kidner, Bible commentator, says, The word burden is too restrictive. It means whatever is given you, your appointed lot in life. Hence, in the New English Bible, it's translated your fortunes. And it's the promise here that not that God will carry it, but that he will sustain you. And so it's a whole different way of understanding the word burden. My unscholarly paraphrase would be God will sustain you in your appointed lot in life. And in that sense, you are to be like a donkey taking on whatever load sustained by him to do so. G. Campbell Morgan writes, 
The experience of suffering was not taken away from the servant of God, but he was sustained and so made strong enough to resist its pressure and through it to make his service more perfect. This is how God ever sustains us in the bearing of burdens. And so that's the sense of burden here. And so let's read verse 16. As for me, I will call upon God and the Lord shall save me evening and morning. And at noon, I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. Big change in David's attitude and approach. Instead of whining, David visited the tabernacle three times a day for prayer, as was the custom of the Jews. Instead of crying like a baby, he cried like a man at the prescribed times. And so you get the idea that prior to this, he was in some kind of a depressed funk where he just kept crying and crying out to the Lord. And now he says, I've gotten things together because I understand I'm not a dove and I'm going to go to the tabernacle like I should be. And, and there I can cry out to the Lord. He'll hear my cry and, and I, can tr- I can approach him like a, a man of God. And he knew that the Lord would save him. Now, David understood that to mean his current troubles would not lead to his destruction and death because the Lord needed to keep unconditional promises to David. There were promises that he had not yet fulfilled. And he knew that he would be saved through them or until they were fulfilled. And so that's the idea here. This praying three times a day, uh, I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Maybe it's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said he prayed three times for his affliction. Remember that episode in Corinthians? He says, uh, I had a, a thorn in the flesh. Some kind of huge uh, thorn is in mind, like, you know, not, not just a little a sliver. I, and that's bad enough. You ever get a sliver? You know, all of a sudden you think, why did I rub my hand on that old piece of maggoty wood, you know, and stuff? And then you can't get it out. You got to go to your wife. But you got to get that thing out of there. But this wasn't a splinter. I mean, this is described in Corinthians as some huge, gigantic stake. And then he says it's the messenger of Satan. So, man, I mean, Paul was in trouble. He said, I prayed three times. And I always wondered about that. I, I, I mean, I'm kind of dense. I don't, you probably knew the answer already, but it took me a long time. I thought, what do you mean you prayed three times? Three times in a row? Three times every day, whatever. But he, he meant that he prayed for it at the prescribed times as a Jew. Morning or, or evening, morning and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, noon and stuff and whenever it was, and he would pray. Now, God's answer, yeah, I'm going to sustain you by my grace not going to take it away. It's good for you. And so Paul said, great. My light affliction is but for a moment. It's for the glory of God. And that's essentially what David goes through here. He wants to be like a dove. And God says, yeah, no, I need you to be like a donkey. Uh, Doves are no good for me. I need donkeys. We're under no obligation, by the way, to pray three times a day, either in Jerusalem or looking east toward it. Uh, We are in constant dialogue, obviously, with the Lord. But I think these Old Testament guys were too. I mean, they, you know, David certainly was spending time with the Lord to get songs like this. Uh, but they also had these uh, habits that revolved around the tabernacle and then the temple later. And we don't really do that. It's just pray always with the spirit of the Lord upon you. Verse 18, he has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me, for there were many against me. God will hear and afflict them, even he who abides from old, Selah, Because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. These two verses seem to look back on David's troubles. God did sustain him. He was now at peace. God would be the one to mete out justice upon those who did not fear him. This is a good summary of a lot of our troubles in life. I mean, some of our troubles are lifelong, whatever they might be. 
emotional, physical, that's sure. And some are just very temporary, but a lot of times uh, you go through a trial and then it just ends suddenly. And you could say, God heard and he took care of this problem and I'm at peace and he'll deal with the wicked. And that's basically what David gets to in his life. Verse 20, he has put forth his hands against those who are at peace with him. He has broken his covenant. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. I guess this could describe Ahithophel, the counselor. If it does, what an awful legacy. He definitely did not finish well. I've been talking too about, uh, because I'm older now, uh, about finishing well. Anybody can start good. In fact, as a Christian, you know, if you're saved as an adult, you usually start pretty well. You're, you're just so excited to be a Christian and, you know, you have faith that'll move mountains and stuff like that. Uh, and then over the years, you have a tendency to kind of get into a spiritual slumber. You need to be stirred up, you know, that kind of thing. And a lot of Christians don't finish well. And so we want to finish well. So let's double down on discipline uh, so that we don't become disqualified at the end of our walk with the Lord. We said this psalm looked forward, though, prophetically to Judas's betrayal of Jesus, but then it also has another further fulfillment. Here he's speaking of violating a covenant and making war with those who are at peace with them. What does that sound like to you who study Bible prophecy? What well, sounds like the Antichrist who is coming on the global stage, whom the nation of Israel will enter into a covenant with, and then he will betray them. And so this is a this is this happened in David's life. It looked forward to Jesus, Jesus and Judas, and it looks farther forward beyond our own time to the coming of the Antichrist and the nation of Israel. And by the way, let me clear something up. These guys I talked about earlier in the prophecy update who uh, claim that the revelation has been fulfilled and all that kind of stuff. I was listening to one a couple of months ago, and um, he got super dramatic to lead up to this point. And he said, hey, let me tell you something that, that they don't tell you. The, the word antichrist is not used in the book of the Revelation. And if you're not ready for that, you think, oh, wow, Gene's a liar. After 600 prophecy updates, I finally figured out he's a liar, you know, that kind of a thing. Well, let me say this. This Antichrist character, he has more than 30 names in the Bible. 30. The only person I can think of who has more names in the Bible than him is Jesus. And so in the book of the Revelation, he's not called the Antichrist because he's called the beast, which I find worse. He's also called the man of sin in the Bible, the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness. He's called the Assyrian. There's a ton of names. And so, yeah, that's fine. He's not called the Antichrist, but the beast is the Antichrist. And so don't be misled. So look at the description given here. His speech was smoother than butter. His heart was war. His words were softer than oil, and yet they were drawn swords. When the Bible speaks about the coming Antichrist, the most common attribute that it speaks of concerns his speech and his words. Notice also the instruction, cast your burden upon the Lord, for he will sustain you. This will apply to the nation of Israel once through the terrible tribulation, they turn their eyes again to the Messiah. The revelation specifically states how God will sustain Israel to the end of that terrible time. You know, in the middle of the tribulation, you read about this in Matthew as well, Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus says, flee to the wilderness. When you see the abomination of desolation in the temple, flee to the wilderness. Where, and God sustains the Jews that have fled into the wilderness for the next three and a half years. And so, this psalm 
is looking at that prophetically. Cast your burden on the Lord, verse 22, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. So we're saying that this means something a little deeper than footprints in the sand. Again, remember the apostle Paul, he cast his thorn in the flesh on the Lord and the Lord said, okay, I'm leaving your thorn in the flesh and the messenger of Satan, but I'll sustain you as I do. And so it wasn't, you know, Paul didn't say, I didn't see my footprints and Jesus was carrying me during that time. Jesus might've been carrying him, but he was still suffering. But Paul is all excited about it, remember? The guy, he'd be labeled a nut today in most churches. Hey, Paul, what is going on with that thorn in your flesh? Is that guy the messenger of Satan? Yeah, there to keep me humble. Maybe you should have some counseling after service. Crazy. The Bible version called the message translates the end of this verse. He'll never let good people topple into ruin. Any ruin, we do that to ourselves. It isn't that the Christian life is too hard and we fail at it. It's that our hearts harden. We leave our first love. We should warn ourselves the older we are in the Lord, how easy it is to leave our first love and how easy it is for our heart to harden. There's lots of exhortations in the Bible to wake up out of our slumber, to get rid of the weights in our life. What, it just a natural part of living in the world as a Christian is that we divest ourselves of the weight of sin because of the forgiveness of Jesus. And then the longer we're Christians, we keep picking things back up again. And we put them in the bundle on our back and they finally weigh us down and, and we're not able to finish the race in a way that we would like to. And so all of us need to look at our lives all of the time, not in a terrible, you know, to, oh, God won't let me do anything way, but the, God doesn't want me to stumble kind of way. Do I really need to be doing this, saying this, buying this, going to this place, you know, what, what do I want to do as a Christian that will help me to run the race with patience? Verse 23, but you, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days. I will trust in you. David saw both the ultimate and the immediate destiny of the wicked. Ultimately, eternally, they would be brought to what he called the pit of destruction. Now, the Bible is progressive in its revelation. That means when you read the book of Genesis, you don't know everything there is to know about, say, the afterlife. You know very little about the afterlife. But as you continue to read through the Old Testament, obviously into the New, you get a more complete revelation of what it's like, uh, you know, what heaven and hell, the pit, uh, different prisons, you know, all these kinds of things that the Bible describes. And so David knew there was some kind of suffering in the afterlife, and he called it the pit of destruction. We know more than David did about that because the Holy Spirit has written more to us about that. And then immediately, God would vindicate David. His enemies would be dealt with. If this is a contemplation of David upon Absalom's rebellion, his son was killed, and it could be said of him he didn't live out half of his days. And so it's not a promise that all of your enemies are going to die when they're 45 years old or whatever half of their days would be. It's a recollection that Absalom did die with a life ahead of him and that that's how God deals with the wicked. He takes care of it for the sake of the righteous. Your enemies will eventually be dealt with at the second coming of Jesus, the Antichrist and his cohort, who we call the false prophet are going to become the first two permanent residents of the lake of fire. What we call hell, the Bible calls a lake of fire. 
And so they are thrown alive into the lake of fire. Satan is thrown into something called the bottomless pit where he'll be bound for a thousand years. After the 1000 year reign of Jesus on the earth, Satan and the fallen angels are thrown into the lake of fire. And then all the wicked dead from all of time, from Genesis through Revelation, will be raised in a general uh, resurrection of the dead. And they will likewise be cast alive into the lake of fire. So that's what's going to happen to our enemies. And by enemies, I mean all those who are the enemies of Christ, all those who remain at enmity with God because they don't receive Christ as their Savior. And so if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you've not been born again, if you haven't trusted Jesus, if you haven't asked him to forgive you your sins, if you haven't repented, however you want to put it, your destiny is to be cast alive in a body into the lake burning with fire. And your only decision time is in this life. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this comes judgment. No second chance. Uh, your chance is now. As the Holy Spirit, as the word is taught, or read or received by you, opens your heart, frees your will so that you can make a decision to trust Christ as your Savior. Donkey, not the animal we would ordinarily want to identify with. I mean, if you saw a list of Bible animals and so you'd say, hey, what do you want to be? Eagle, sounds good. Lamb, I guess, because they're special to Jesus. There's a lot of animal, lion, how about a lion? They seem pretty fierce. Uh, very few people are going to choose the donkey. But if your other choice, if your only other choice is a dove, donkey is the spiritual alternative. This will never catch on, but I was thinking that when our brothers and sisters in Christ are sharing their trouble, we might just ask them, are you a donkey or are you a dove? Nobody else but us would get that. And even then, I'm not sure how encouraging it is. But that's the idea here. You know, David said, I wanted to be a dove. All I could think about was getting out of my trouble. It, was, it weighed me down. I became a, a whining child before the Lord. My voice was raised high. My tears were splattering. The, the Lord endured that. Now I see that I want to be a donkey and that the Lord will sustain me. Not that I throw all my burdens on him. That's not the kind of burden thing we're talking about, but that this is my lot in life. And in that lot, he will lead me. He will guide me. And I can't be overburdened because he knows me and loves me. And so maybe instead of asking others, we just content ourselves with asking ourselves more and more. In this situation, am I being a dove or am I a donkey? Let's pray. Father, thank you.